If you have your Bibles, uh, take them, and we're going to probably turn to about uh, three different uh, verses, which will uh, help us make our way into our topic this morning. Uh, the first one you can be turning to is in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, uh, and I just want to read a verse from there. Uh, a number of uh, weeks ago, I began thinking about Christmas, and um, I, I'm not one who always likes to do the same thing and try and find um, different ways of articulating uh, truths. And a number of weeks ago, I read a book um, which was about uh, the names of Jesus and about his work, particularly uh, as a man. And Christmas is really about the coming of Jesus to earth, Emmanuel, God with us in flesh and blood. And I think it's helpful for us to think about what was accomplished through his incarnation. Um, his incarnation is absolutely central and critical to our salvation and uh, to his work in eternity. And so I thought, well, let's look at uh, a few different um, uh, texts that describe um, the work of Jesus in various ways. Last week, if you were with us, um, I went home thinking, wow, that was a, that was a heavy dump of biblical material. Um, but the, the heart of it was simply the fact that Jesus is the crusher or the bruiser of Satan's head and how important and necessary it is for us to understand that, to rejoice in that and to um, get a sense of why we have conflict in our lives. Um, this week, I want us to uh, just drop in on three particular ways in which Jesus accomplished his work and continues to accomplish his work in our life. And it's in three offices, um, uh, offices that were established in the Old Testament and all of them were offices that were confirmed by anointing. And Christ means the anointed one. And so Jesus picks up and perfects the realities of each of those three offices of prophet, priest, and king. I think in the day and age in which we live, this is really strange language. Prophet, priest, and king. It really is not part of our daily conversation. It's, um, sadly enough, really not part of our our, um, our own thinking and our own, um, our own interaction with people. It, I wonder sometimes if we, uh, if we were to hear those words, we say, well, they really have no relevance for my life. What do I need a prophet and a priest and a king for? After all, I live in Parksville and we live in a democracy and I'm pretty self-sufficient, thank you very much. When is the last time you thought about a prophet? It might have been a few weeks ago when Charles Manson died and you thought, well, there's an example of a wacko prophet. Or maybe David Koresh comes to your mind or some other nut job, which is often what we associate with prophets. I sometimes think about priests. When was the last time you thought about a priest? Um, might have been in the context of some strange movie and some sacrifices being offered, or it might be in the context of another kind of religion. Uh, and I also thought, what about King? Um, I just happened to watch uh, a rendition of Robin Hood the other day and was thinking of King David, or not King David, King Richard, sorry, the lion-hearted. Um, but kings are not even part of our, I, I think, our regular pr uh, thought process. And yet the Bible is so clear on the necessity that we have of a prophet, priest, and king. And of some very critical needs that they meet in our life. And those needs are in relationship to our relationship with God. How do we hear from God? How do we approach God? How do we submit our lives to God? In, in what way is it possible for us even to hear from God and to approach God and to have God rule and reign in our life? Because we're in a lot of trouble. And I, I don't know if we often think about the nature of the trouble that we're in, but we're in a heap of trouble. Uh, 
And part of our trouble is, is and I say this um, with gentleness, is, but we are ignorant. We don't know um, what God wants. Uh, and by the way, I'm assuming that we uh, believe in a God because I, I think that's um, something that God has in, put in each one of us. Uh, I think it was Augustine who said somewhere along the road, the um, heart of man is empty or restless until it finds its rest in thee. Uh, so whether we recognize God or not, we're, we're searching for him. We're wondering where he is. We're wondering if there is one. Um, and so whether or not we, uh, 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 we admit that, uh, my assumption is that there is a God and we're ignorant of what he wants of us. I think secondly, we all feel an estrangement from him. Um, maybe not so much now if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but at, at one point there, there was certainly a distinct estrangement from him and even a sense of maybe hostility. And then certainly in all of us, there is a, an amount of rebellion. We really want nothing to do with people who have authority over us. We are probably one of the most anti-authoritarian cultures this world has ever known. We just are repulsed by anybody who wants to have any kind of authority or control over us. And so these three offices, which are um, things that were accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ, answer those critical needs that we have. Now, the first is simply a prophet. We need a prophet to deliver us from our ignorance. We need somebody to tell us about God and tell us what God wants us to hear. Uh, we find this in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And uh, if you have time, I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. But it's striking the contrast that, that Moses draws here and that God through the word. Because um, he illustrates, first of all, the fact that we want to know what to do. We want to know how to interpret events. We want to know what the future holds. And we, we look at all different means and places and people to try and help us um, clear up our ignorance. And so uh, Moses begins by just recounting to the people of Israel as they're about to come into the land that God is going to give them that there's going to be all kinds of abominations in the land and they ought not learn or take up the practices of people in the land. For instance, he says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering or anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer. A necromancer is somebody who communicates with the dead. Um, uh, for wh whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before your God. For these nations which you are about to dispose, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. That's a condemnation on them. They are seeking answers for life from people who communicate with spiritual forces other than God. But he says, as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed to, you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you should listen to. And then in verse 17, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to you all that I command. It's a contrast. Different ways of trying to deal with our ignorance. And the idea of the prophet presupposes that. And, and what is happening here is a prophet is a prophet is someone who communicates what God wants to say to man. It's a sort of a, 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 a from heaven to earth reality and the necessity that we have. A prophet's words were considered, at least in the Bible, to be considered God's words. 
and to have the authority of heaven behind them. That is why there was such severe punishment to those who prophesied error and said that they spoke for God when they didn't speak for God because they were deceiving the people and leading them astray. So a prophet was one who was supposed to speak faithfully the words that God had given to them to teach the people the law of God, to tell them about salvation, to call them to repentance, to warn them about judgment to come and to speak to them about the future. And this anticipation of a great and final prophet starts here in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But it goes through the Bible. I mean, you can go to so many places. Um, first, or, or John chapter 1 verses 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That's telling us that Christ was the Word of God given to us here on earth. We understand as you read the Gospels that Jesus was perceived to be a prophet many times in his earthly ministries. People would comment about him and say, he's a prophet. He's come as a prophet. Jesus even announced himself as a prophet who had come to earth. People were amazed when Jesus spoke with, that he spoke with such authority. And they wondered, how did he have such words? Because he spoke like none of their other religious leaders did. And that's because he spoke the very words of God. In fact, Jesus would say time and time again, the words I speak to you are only the words that the Father gives to me. And so Jesus was one who spoke uh, clearly, faithfully, and only what God wanted us to hear. And in fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the you can build two foundations in your life. You can build a foundation on rocks, a solid foundation, or you can build your foundation on sand. And what is that foundation? One is the Word of God and one is not the Word of God. In another place, you might remember where Jesus had been teaching. And uh, the thing that I have come to appreciate about Jesus and somebody who really speaks with God is they don't just tell you what you want to hear. They tell you what you need to hear. And so Jesus had been teaching some particularly difficult things and disciples were just dropping off like flies. And finally, Jesus turned to his own 12 disciples and he said to them, are you also going to leave me? And do you remember their response to him? Where else would we go? You have the very words of life. And so Jesus spoke the words of life. And the Bible talks about our great need for this. Uh, in moral and ethical realms, it says that the fool says in his heart there is no God. The, the fool is, is not mean that you're intellectually foolish or you don't know anything about math or about mechanics or about plumbing. What it is saying is that spiritually in your head you're foolish to say that there is no God. goes on to say that we have become futile in our thinking and that our foolish hearts are darkened, that we are darkened in our understanding, alienated from a life of God because the ignorance that is in us and the hardness of our hearts, it talks about spiritual deception. We can't find God. We can't understand God. We can't hear God. We deceive ourselves. And so we need somebody to deal with the ignorance that's within us and the darkness that we find in our lives. Have you ever thought about this? Most people are somewhat... Um, intimidated by the dark. Other people are actually terrified by the dark. They go to bed at night and they have night lights on. They, they, they have all kinds of manners of ways in which they avoid or deal with the terror that they have at night. What happens when there's an unfamiliar house and the or unfamiliar noise in your house when it's really dark? Well, you call Kathy and she goes and she investigates and <laughs> makes sure that there's nothing wrong. A number of weeks ago, I was uh, out, uh, out in the woods really, really early. And it was dark and there was a fog and I literally could not see the hand in front of my, my face. And 
I wanted to, to cover a lot of ground. And every noise I heard, every sound I heard, I thought it was a cougar. I thought it was a bear. I was absolutely terrified by the dark. Have you under, ever wondered why we do not have a corresponding terror of spiritual darkness? Why is it that we're unafraid of the sin that we get involved in? Why is it that we are unafraid of the, the paths that we choose that are paths of darkness rather than paths of light? Why don't we have a, a corresponding natural fear or terror of spiritual darkness? This is one of the reasons that we need a prophet. We live in so much confusion. We live with so many competing voices. We live in so much spiritual darkness. We need somebody to tell us the truth, somebody to reveal the Father to us, somebody to show us God. We need somebody who will tell us not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. This is why God sent prophets. And this is why God ultimately sent Jesus, who is the light of the world. So this is why we need a prophet. And I just have touched the surface of this, but I want to encourage you as you go home this week, when you hit times of confusion, where you hit times of not knowing right from wrong, when you hit times when you're uh, just not sure which way you should go, say, God, speak to me through Christ. How does Christ speak to us? He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through his spirit that lives in us. He speaks to us through other brothers and sisters who communicate the word of God and share the word of God with us. So Christ continues to operate in his office of prophet and we need to listen to what he has to say. The second office that the Bible says that Christ fulfills is that of priest. Why do we need a priest? Why do you need a priest? Well, you and I need a priest because of our sin and because of the guilt that is the result of that sin. And the presupposition behind this office of priest is that we are estranged from God, that because of our sin and the guilt that follows, that we are in discord with God. We are out of harmony with God. We are out of relationship with God. We are alienated from God. We cannot come into his presence. How do we get back into the presence of God? See, if the office of prophet was dealing with God to man, the office of priest deals with man to God. And part of the work of Christ as he was here on earth in the flesh was to reconcile us back to God through his priestly ministry. This notion of Christ our priest is woven all through the New Testament. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible that is given to help us understand the great high priest, Jesus Christ, and that's the book of Hebrews. And if you have some extra time this week in the midst of all the business, I would encourage you to go back and read the book of Hebrews. There it describes our high priest, Jesus Christ, for us. It describes his character. It describes his better work and his continued work as our priest now, what he accomplished through his sacrifice, his lineage. And as we think about our great high priest, the Bible really summarizes his work under two categories. One, work that he's fulfilled, and another, work that he continues to do on our behalf. The fulfilled work of Jesus Christ is offer sacrifice for us and in fact offer himself as the final and complete sacrifice for our sins so that the wrath of God could be turned away from us. And the second aspect of the work of Christ on our behalf is his intercession for us even now. He prays for us. He pleads for us. He goes into the presence of God and talks to God about you and I. That's what a priest does. Behind the idea of sacrifice then first is this idea of atonement. It's at one minute, it's getting back in a relationship with God. 
I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament. I hope you do. But as you come to the sacrifices, you've been confused. Or you've been amazed. I remember not long ago reading, I think, in the book of Kings about the thousands of animals that were slaughtered. And what was going through my head was just the bloodbath that would have been. The visual reminder that you would have had as you saw a sacrifice of the cost that was behind your sin and paying the penalty for your sin. It was an extraordinary visual reminder. But I don't know if you've ever come to the book of Leviticus in your Bible reading. Read about the first four verses of chapter 1 and said, Oh, enough of this. I'm going on to Numbers. Because Leviticus chapter 1 to 8 is all about sacrifice. There's eight sacrifices described in there. And it is fascinating to actually spend time and think about those sacrifices because when we understand the reality of sacrifice, God gave us sacrifices so that we would know how we get back into a relationship with him. And we know that all of our sacrifices, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, could never take away our sin because after all, they weren't human. But they could only um, put aside the wrath of God until Christ, who would be our perfect sacrifice, would come. But in every one of those eight sacrifices, Christ fulfilled what God was looking for in that sacrifice. Only two of them have to do with sin, the burnt offering and the sin offering. And in those, when those offerings were made, our sins were dealt with and we were made right with God. The other six had to do with our dedication to God and our fellowship with God. And so when we think about that, Christ as our sacrifice means that not only are our sins dealt with, not only is our guilt erased and are we now back in a relationship with God, but through the sacrifice of God, we are dedicated fully to him and we have ongoing eternal fellowship with God. The work of Christ on our behalf as our priest through sacrifice is absolutely astounding. He washed away the guilt of our sin because he offered himself as the full and the final sacrifice. The perfect, unblemished Lamb of God. He propitiated the wrath of God. And I, we don't like to hear these things, but God is wrathful and angry towards sin and sinners. And through Christ and his sacrifice, he satisfied the wrath of God. Christ reconciled us to God. He dealt with the hostility that was between us and God and took it out of the way so there's no barrier any longer between us and God. And Christ was our redemption. In other words, through his sacrifice, we were bought back for God. It's an incredible work that Christ has done and it would, could only be done if he had come in the flesh so he could identify with us fully and in every way. But the second aspect of his uh, priesthood, which continues to this day, is that of intercession. We need one who will represent us before God. One who is able to sympathize with us. One who is able to understand what it's like to be weak. What it's like to be human. What it's like to suffer. What it's like to be tempted. This is why the Bible is so clear that Jesus became like us in every way except without sin. This is why the Bible is so clear to describe Jesus as having flesh and bones. Because his high priestly work depends on his ability to relate with us in every single conceivable way except in sin. Somebody who can lead us to God. Somebody who can deal with our troubled heart and our troubled conscience. Someone who understands our suffering and pain. Someone who understands the extent of temptation. Who understands what it is to be tested. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation and you've thought to yourselves, you know, nobody knows what I'm going through. 
And that's probably true because, you know, all of us, our, our situations are very unique. There, there's general similarities with us, but none of our situations are actually identical. But we sometimes think wrongly about that then, and we say, well, nobody actually can understand me. Nobody has experienced what I have. And then the next, clue, the next step that some of us make in relationship with, with our um, uh, uh, um, uh, relationship with Jesus is to say, and not even Jesus understands me. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that the stuff that you're going through, the stuff that you're experiencing is so unique to you that not even Jesus understands you? I want to say that's an error. That is not a right way to think. He didn't have happened to him everything that happens to us. But in his high priestly work, in his identify, identification human flesh and blood, Jesus understands every emotion, every feeling, uh, the consequence of all kinds of suffering, all kinds of pain, has endured physical suffering, mental suffering, and uh, emotional suffering that, every, that identifies with every single one of us. He knows what it is to suffer indignity. He knows what it is to suffer shame. He knows what it is to suffer humiliation. The Bible says he is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And frankly, if he doesn't know that, he can't intercede on our behalf before God in heaven. The reality is, is too, Jesus even knows more than we do about suffering and pain because his shame and his humiliation were all the more painful and intense and crushing because he was innocent. It's one thing when you and I suffer for what we have done wrong and we deserve it. It's another thing to suffer innocently. But Jesus knows that and he's experienced that. And as a result, he always lives to make intercession for us. And the Bible says he's able to save us to the uttermost. He is able to rescue you and deliver you from the far most places that you find yourself in your heart, in your head, and in your soul. He is able to rescue you from the extremities of your pain and of life and to bring you to the Father. I think there's incredible comfort in that, loved ones. I hope you think about that as you go through your day. I don't know if you've thought about that this week, but as you've um, re- maybe experienced just a, a heart-crushing week, maybe you've experienced pain this week that you thought you would never have to experience in your life. And you thought, I'm all alone here. I think one of the things that would help you, and it certainly is a great comfort, is this understanding that Christ right then at that moment was interceding for you. That every moment of our lives, Christ is before the throne of his Father. He's praying for us. He knows what we need. He knows our weakness. He sympathizes with us. He knows what God needs to do for us. And he pleads with God on our behalf. Can you think of a better intercessor than Christ on your behalf, loved ones? To have one that knows you better than you even know yourself. Pleading on your behalf before God. When you face junk this week, When you face pain this week, when you face sorrow this week, when you face temptation this week, don't say to yourself, nobody knows I'm all alone. Rather, say to yourself, I have a great high priest who is right now interceding at the Father's right hand on my behalf. We sing a song, we don't sing it often, but it's a beautiful song. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name I love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven in his, on his hands. My, um, my name is written on his heart. 
I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me there depart. I'd encourage you to think through again this week about Christ, your priest, your great high priest, and find in him everything you need to sustain and support your relationship with God. The final area is this notion of king. Jesus Christ is our king. Why do we need a king? Well, we need a king because we're a rebellious lot. We are a corrupt lot. And we need a perfect king to lead us out of our rebellion and into his kingdom. Again, I, I thought about this. Um, you know, we use this phrase sometimes, seen is believing. How, are, how is your daily life, and I'm assuming you all live in Parksville, although I don't know you live in Park. I know you don't all live in Parksville. But how is your daily life impacted by the thought of a king? Was that even on your radar screen this past week? Was it part of your praying? Was it part of your thinking as you looked at the news? Did you think at all about the notion of a king as you went through and experienced this week? I think when we even put Jesus into that picture, it's very difficult for us to conceptualize Jesus as a king, to think of him in those kinds of terms. And as you think about a king, let me be honest. Let me ask you, to be honest with you, when you think of king, is Jesus the first thing that pops into your mind? Or is it maybe King Richard, as I mentioned earlier? Or is it King David? Or is it some king on some uh, children's show that you watch with your children? But is Jesus even in the top three of the list that you think about when you think about king? Make no mistake, Jesus is king. He is king over you, and he is king over this world, and he is king over this cosmos. And the reality of Jesus as king is an important one because sometimes we talk in the church in such an erroneous way and we say, well, you need to make Jesus king in your life. What a bunch of hooey. You don't make Jesus anything. Jesus is king over your life. What you need to do is choose whether or not you will serve and obey him, but you don't make Jesus king over your life. And Jesus is also king over this world and he's reigning right now and we look forward as the songs that we started singing at the beginning of the service remind us that Jesus is coming back as king. One of the things that the people in the Old Testament had and I'm not referring you to the scriptures that are on your notes um, but this, the people of Israel were expecting a king. It was woven all through their thinking going back as early as Genesis 49.10 where the prophecy was made that the scepter shall never depart from the tribe of Judah. It was woven through prophecies about the coming Messiah that he would be one who would king. The angel that came to uh, Mary spoke to her this way and says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And if you're familiar with the story, you remember when the wise men came or the magi came from the east, what was their sort of comment? They said, we are coming or we are looking for him who was born king of the Jews. When Jesus began his public ministry, he began by pronouncing the kingdom of heaven is among you. It's a phrase that's used well over 60 times in the synoptic gospels. And if there's a kingdom of heaven, there has to be a king over that kingdom. And Jesus demonstrated his kingship in power as he healed the sick, as he raised the dead, as he cast out demons. All of those were demonstrations of his incredible power and authority as king. As he came into the city that final time on that final Passover, riding on a donkey, it was 
was the fulfillment of a promise that their king would come to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of a burden. In his trial, as he's interacting with Pilate, you remember that discussion. And Pilate asks him, are you a king? And Jesus says, well, yes, I am a king. He says, but my kingdom is not of this earth. And they have this debate. And finally, when he's crucified over his head, he put this was the, or this is the king of the Jews. Everywhere in the New Testament or many places in the New Testament we find references to his kingship. Where do we see it most pronounced, his power as a king? Well, in the resurrection. And I, I can just drop this in your head. But what happened in the resurrection? That as God raised him up, he was declared as the victor over the battle, over all the forces of evil that were arrayed against him. That is one of the things that a king does is he wins wars. He defeats enemies. And Christ, through his resurrection, declared his conquest and his victory over sin and evil and darkness and death. His resurrection is one of the most profound pointers to his kingship. And then in his ascension, when he goes back up into heaven, as he ascended into heaven, he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's crowned with glory and honor, and he's exalted to the highest place. He's Lord over all things. I would invite you to go and read Colossians 1, 15 uh, to 17, where there it talks about his cosmic reign. As there, Jesus rules over the world that he has made, that he created, that he sustains, that he guides providentially. He's not just a king over your life. He's not just a king over this world, but he's a king over the cosmos. He is a great king. And we need to think about that. When we hear the word king, our mind should automatically go to my king, Jesus, who reigns in my life, who reigns over the church, who reigns over the world, who reigns over the cosmos. Again, we are a rebellious people. Who is it that will tame that rebellion? Who will turn that rebellion into submission? Who will take that rebellion and turn it into something good, into service? You know, we are all, before we came to know Christ, we are captive or we were captive to a kingdom of darkness. We were captive to a kingdom of evil. We were captive to an evil prince, so to speak. Did you deliver yourself? Did you scale the wall and jump out and get over the moat, so to speak, and walk into the kingdom of light and say, here I am? No, God came and rescued you. He defeated the power of darkness and he came and he grabbed you out of the kingdom of darkness and he transferred you into the kingdom of light. And then he's working in your heart. And we're not there yet. And I'm not there yet. You might be there yet. But more and more, he's taking my rebellion and he's turkey, turning it turkey. He's I'm thinking Christmas already. <laughs> he's turning it into a desire to want to serve him and to submit to him and to live in his kingdom. Because he is a great king. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of glory. He's a king of peace. He's a king of justice. He's a king of might. He's a king of power. This is how the Bible describes our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what about this world, loved ones? Leaders are, I don't know about you, but I, I read these news feeds. And all I see is that leaders are out for themselves, really. They're building their little kingdoms. They don't really care who gets hurt. They don't really care who gets drawn up in the wake of their terror and their, their desire for more power and accumulation. And evil seems to be spreading or it seems to be growing or it seems to at least be exposing itself in greater ways. And we wonder sometimes, is there anything greater? Is there anyone that's in charge? Is there anyone controlling this? Or is anyone who has the final say over all of this? Is there any reason that I have that I shouldn't be afraid? 
when I read the news and I get up every morning. Loved ones, let me suggest something to you. What would happen if you got up each day, and let's just say for the rest of this month, let's make it easy. The rest of this month, it's, that means about 21 days left. And the first thing that you did when you got up in the morning was to uh, confess and affirm that Jesus Christ is king. King of your life, king of this world, king of this universe. Before you turned on the news, before you picked up the newspaper, before you read your news feed, before you did any of that, you affirmed in your heart, Jesus is king. He is my king. And that you absorbed into your thinking uh, the, the great summary of that in the hallelujah chorus, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings, Lord of lords, forever and ever. What were to happen if you started your day and just downloaded that one song, the hallelujah chorus, and played that every morning before you played anything else, before you listened to everything else, and filled your heart with the biblical truth that Christ reigns now? I bet it would transform the way you looked at that day and the way you dealt with that day and the way you faced that day. Start your day. Lord, here I am. I can hardly function. This is a brutal day that's ahead of me. In fact, I don't know all that's coming, but I know you are king. And submit your life to his kingship. The world around me may rage, but I know soon I will hear this great declaration of the angel in Revelation. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, that says, And when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And he will judge the nations. Loved ones, what great themes to fill your heart and mind with. When you're confused and anxious and don't know which way to turn and don't know what's up and don't know what God wants you to do and, and can't discern righteousness from wicked, say, God, I need Christ to speak his truth to me. I need to hear your voice speaking to me through Christ your prophet. And maybe when you are facing a distressing day and you're, you're deep in your own stuff and it's painful and it hurts and you don't know what to do, cry out to Christ and say, Christ, would you take me before the throne of your father today? And when your world is turned upside down or the world around you is turned upside down and it looks chaotic, say, but Christ, I know you are king. And I know you are reigning. You are reigning in my life. You are reigning in this church. You are reigning in this community. You are reigning over this world. Help me not be afraid. God has spoken to us through his prophet, Jesus Christ. That was part of his humanity and his work was to perfectly articulate God's word and truth to us. God has made a way back to him possible through Jesus Christ who is our priest. And God has made it possible for the ugliness and the rebellion and the chaos of our life and our world to be subdued by Jesus Christ, his choice of king forever and ever and ever. It's God's triple cure for our ignorance, for our guilt, and for our corruption, Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. 
And we thank you for um, the breadth of what he has accomplished for us. I thank you that he took all this on when he took on flesh. That he met our need to hear from you. That he met our need to reconcile us to you. That he met our need to get rid of our rebellion and take on wonderful submission to him. Father, turn our hearts towards Christ, I pray, this week. And maybe even this day, Father, may someone who is dying to hear for you hear in the words of Christ truth about you. May someone who is looking to find their way back to you find in Christ their perfect high priest. And may someone whose world is chaotic and rebellious find in Christ to be the perfect king of righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.